a lot of dog stars were abandoned. I mean, Rin Tin Tin was abandoned. Luke was supposed to have been a stray. Yeah, there, there's something that people love this idea of an abandoned dog that makes good. Hi, this is Christina, and welcome to Footnoting History. Last week, Esther and I discussed the dog stars of early cinema, from 19th century actualities to the glory days of Rin Tin Tin. Join us today for the conclusion of our consideration of cinematic canines, as we discuss such sundry topics as Lassie's patriotism, the moral implications of depicting animal cruelty on screen, and the strategic importance of prosthetic St. Bernard heads. Lot of the same elements though you have the good dog who is unjustly accused who nevertheless forgives his accusers and gives them his love lassie never had to put up with that kind of stuff right being falsely accused and all of oh, that i mean kidding? i just remember lassie being heroic and like oh yeah of uh so I can't, was like Lassie ever falsely accused like Rin Tin Tin? Like, uh, were, were, did, did Lassie just kind of rip off some of the Rin Tin Tin stuff? Well, I don't know how much of it was a rip off. I mean, there, it was kind of a different moment when Lassie came on the scene. But there are definitely, there's actually, uh, in the third movie of the Lassie franchise, Lassie does get put on trial, which I think is pretty, I mean, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Yeah, a border, a border collie on trial. Yeah. Probably the, no, the rough least collie. offensive rough animal. Collie. Rough collies, oh, rough rough collies collie. have okay. the long noses, yeah. So Lee Duncan actually apparently hated whenever anybody would compare Rin Tin Tin to Lassie. And in a way, I guess he was right. You know, they were both canine movie stars, but they were of very different sorts. If Rin Tin Tin was a rugged, manly dog who only associated with rugged, manly men and heroines in distress to get his job done, Lassie was a dog who was all about her people. So this actually also coincides with the next category of dog movies I would submit, which is that of the human-dog relationship, or ones that highlight the human-dog relationship and its importance. And I imagine that it must not take too much training for dogs to love their humans, but or, or uh, it probably takes less time than, you know, doing doggy tricks or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because actually one of the big problems with training dogs is that they are so focused on their trainers that they don't focus on um, on the actors. Tom Hanks in the movie Turner and Hooch complained that, you know, the, the dog was so focused on the trainer, he actually wound up having to just take time out and play with the dog, or actually dogs, because there was more than one, to get the dog to even look at him during filming. Oh, I know, right? That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, while we're discussing the, the all-important dog-human relationship, it might be worthwhile to explore a little bit how these dogs were trained. So after all, that's the primary expression of the human-dog relationship. In the golden days of doggy cinema, there were a number of kennels that studios relied upon to train the stars. Hollywood's East Kennels produced Toto from The Wizard of Oz. What? I know, I love Toto. Sorry, he's, I love he's Toto. my favorite. Oh, really? He's my, that's my favorite dog, yeah. Her na- it, was, it was a girl. It was a girl, and her name was actually Terry. Oh, well, now it's no longer my favorite. I'm kidding. No, of course, Toto is the name of a really bad 80s band, so you have to, oh, I have I to be very... <laughs> Africa. Come I know. On. We also, I know. We love that song. I love it. We all love that song. Okay. But uh, no, Toto from the Wizard of Oz to me is like you can't beat Toto. That is like the number one yeah. dog. And I and I I'm not really into Terry. I'm prejudiced against Terry, right? Yeah, I'm prejudiced against uh, Terry. Was a Karen Terrier, yeah. But I I, I do love Toto. Okay. <laughs> so sorry, East Kettles also employed Rudd Weatherwax, who would rise to fame as the man who rescued and trained Pal the Rough Collie, better known as Lassie. 
These kennels produce not just one dog for each role, though. Usually, I mean, while early dogs like Rin Tin Tin or Strongheart or Luke uh, that we've just been talking about were real individual dog stars who performed all their own scenes, in later films, trainers began to use dog specialists to perform different parts of the action, with extras kept in reserve in case one should refuse to perform. This is a practice that remains common for really practical reasons, um, because it's, it's rare to find a dog that can learn all of the things that are required of him or her and perform consistently. It's a bit of a mystery, I mean, precisely how film dogs were trained, and our information is sometimes unreliable. In general, dog training manuals of the 20s and 30s advocated corporal punishment-based training, which is, you know, a big no-no today, uh, using a whip or a crop to break dogs of unwanted behaviors. On film sets, certainly rather inhumane methods were often used to achieve desired effects. So in the 1930s, they if, sometimes they show them on late-night TV, but there were these, these films called barkies collectively it was play on talkies ha. Uh, yeah yes produced by mgm very clever very very <laughs> clever no and sometimes they're on late at night when you're like delirious with lack of sleep and they come on and you're like what the yeah so um, they're all dog productions that were usually parodies of popular films that were coming out at the time like dogway melody was a, a, a parody of broadway melody but to i mean so they're all dog productions uh, but trainers would use things like wires, spikes, trip wire, and uh, pitfalls, actually, to achieve the, the effects that they wanted with these dogs. So, but this inhumane method seems not to have been the only one employed. To return again to Rin Tin Tin for a moment, in silent films, Lee Duncan could give spoken commands off-camera to Rinty, uh, which offered a lot more flexibility than hand signals, and apparently Rinty had quite a repertoire. Lee devised a system of hand gestures and mirrors to overcome the problem of Rinty being too focused on him to pay attention to his co-stars, which is maybe something that, you know, the trainers of Hooch could have taken a page out of his, his book. So if Lee Duncan is to be believed, he was actually an early proponent of rewards-based training, which is the predominant, um, the predominant school of training today. You know, if you watch uh, Caesar Milan or something, that's, that's basically what he's doing. He, Lee, uh, claims that he spent a good deal of time before Rinty went into showbiz studying his facial expressions to decide how best to deploy them on film for the story they could tell. So he's working with the dog, not against him. He's not trying to compel him to do something. He's just trying to use his natural behavior to tell a story. This seems to be borne out by many personal appearances he made with Rinty at movie theaters and the demonstrations he gave. People who wrote down accounts of seeing them seem to agree that the dog really did seem utterly motivated to please his master. Okay. So, so I think that's I think that's where the like a like a, a bigger question about you know can dogs act uh -huh. you know uh, and and because it's it's one thing to follow directions but it's another thing to trick the dog in right. order to do all, all all of these things I mean it, I, it's it's kind of an interesting thing are dogs can we actually consider what they're doing acting yeah yeah like can a dog can a dog pretend that he is a dog that has been falsely accused of killing sheep and wants to prove his innocence you know can he you know the answer to that is probably not but there, there have been instances where where dogs do kind of go off script as it were in interesting ways actually in the the volume that i've listed in the bibliography cinematic canines alexandra mclean tells a story uh about Uggy, again, from the artist, you know, there's the scene where, where his, his owner's trying to commit suicide. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but he's the, his owner's he's got the gun and he's trying to commit suicide. And the dog actually unscripted started trying to pull the gun out of his hand. So there, there's this idea that, again, that's not really acting, but that's maybe the dog is, is, is responding to something in, in the other actor's performance as if it were real. Oh, that's an interesting, I think that's an interesting way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, is that acting yeah. or is that, or what is that exactly? I mean, in, in other, in more scientific terms, 
cognitive ethologists will tell you that actually dogs act with each other all the time. I mean, the idea that if you go to a dog park and you see dogs uh, chasing each other around and nipping at each other, you know, they might not be fighting, they might be playing. But what's the difference between fighting and playing? Ethologists will tell you that the difference is that before the, the play chase, there is a signal that's sent from one dog to another that says, you know, now this what what's going to follow this signal is play, is not aggression. So, yeah, I mean, dogs, so a, a, and a grown male dog will act like a puppy with another dog, even though he's not a puppy. So there, there are, weirdly enough, I guess we can call them like conscious decisions that, that dogs make, just like actors make, right. when they want to um, act in a certain way. Right. I mean, I, I think the, the, the first podcast I did, actually, I talked about um, a little bit about dogs' intelligence relative to other animals and to humans. And, you know, the, dogs operate on a kind of problem-solving level at the, at the level of maybe a five-year-old child. So if a five-year-old child can act, a dog can act. I think that answers our question. Yeah. So, <laughs> Pretty much. Either way, yeah. So uh, actually, to, to bring back the artist for a minute, when the artist was released in 2011, you know, Uggy the, the Terrier got a lot of, uh, of press time, maybe even as much as his human co-stars. Um, there was the Consider Uggy Facebook campaign to get him an Oscar. In fact, he did win the Palm Dog, which is the tongue-in-cheek equivalent of the Palm Door. <laughs> I know, I love it. At, at yeah. Con. And the ASPCA's Posker for Best Scene Stealer. Well, you know, when it, when it comes to that movie and that particular year for yeah, what else came, dog what movies, else came out in 2011? I don't see how any other dog. I, I don't see. I don't see the competition there. That the Palm Dog, yeah. so to speak, had to go. Had, had to go to, go to Uggy. Uggy. Yeah. Had to go to Uggy. Yeah, there's no question. Yeah. No, he also drew many comparisons to another famous terrier, Skippy, better known as Asta of the Thin Man fame. The Thin Man, which the first movie came out in 1934, was based on a Dashiell Hammett novel, but was adapted from a serious detective story into one of the premier screwball comedies, starring William Powell and Myrna Loy as Nick and Nora Charles. A screwball comedy, like a fine wine, has several components, battle of the sexes, surreal situations, and often an animal as a surrogate child. Asta appeared in several of these comedies, not just the entire Thin Man franchise, the success of the first inspired five sequels till 1947, but also in The Awful Truth uh, with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn and Bringing Up Baby, which is my personal favorite, Cary Grant again and Catherine Hepburn. Incidentally, the Thin Man novel, in the Thin Man novel, the dog was actually a female schnauzer, a plot point that they changed in the 1930s in the face of anti-German sentiment, which is kind of weird to me. I mean, but there were actually accounts of dachshunds being taken out into the street and stoned, so go figure. Oh no. I know. I don't really like dachshunds, but they don't deserve to be stoned, I guess. No. Asta points the way to the later generations of dog stars in that, again, he was not one dog, but legion. There were multiple trained Astas that specialized in different aspects of performances, like jumping or barking or digging or whatever, uh, which, with the help of a little hair and makeup, were virtually indistinguishable. Skippy's style was comedic, where Rinty's and Stronghearts had been dramatic. His claim to fame, too, was his cowardice, which was a departure from earlier dog films. So, you know, he would do cute things like put his paws over his eyes... And also, there was a lot of strategic foleying. Uh, they would add sound effects in post-production. And with this, this kind of assist, Skippy seems to convey a huge range of emotions and expressions, which are mostly cowardly and or ridiculous. My favorite is the, there's a scene from the end of The Thin Man where it emerges that Skippy has been cuckolded by his wife as a lone Scottish terrier <laughs> puppy tumbles out of their doghouse with all the little white dogs that are... Yeah. Foleying, by the way, is one of the tricks of the trade as far as dog acting is concerned, which is ironic because it involves humans um, bringing in one human who is very good at producing animal sounds. 
So they go back through the film and they add all the little grunts and snarls and snuffles and whimpers that they think should be in there. The dog's performance, though, so Skippy's performance, is totally subordinate to the humans. He's comic relief. He's occasionally um, a plot device, as in bringing up baby, but he's never the driving force behind the action. So if Skippy acted as a surrogate child, the next dog, Lassie, that we're going to look at, is most famous for his interactions with children as part of the famous boy or girl and his her dog trope. Lassie was actually not a lass. The original collie named Pal was very firmly a male, and even in the latest Lassie incarnations, Pal's male descendants continued to play the title role. Like the other stars we've seen, he had a somewhat checkered past. Pal's owner brought him to trainer Rudd Weatherwax, formerly of East Kennels, to break him of his habit of incessant barking and car chasing, which was a perennial problem with collies. He never managed to stop poor Pal chasing cars, and the owner decided he'd had enough, leaving Pal to Weatherwax in lieu of the training fee. Despite his car-chasing ways, Weatherwax saw potential in Pal and started training him for use in films. That's so sad. I know, so right? So basically, Lassie is an OCD collie who cannot stop chasing cars and is just kind of abandoned mm-hmm. at one point. And actually, this is, this is interesting, too, because we have the tropes that are on screen. We also have tropes that are off screen. A lot of dog stars were abandoned. I mean, Rin Tin Tin was abandoned. Luke was supposed to have been a stray. Yeah, there, there's something that people love this idea of an abandoned dog that makes good. Again, humans like an yeah. underdog. Yeah, so literally. In the early 1940s, uh, Weatherwax actually bought the rights to a popular novella that had been serialized in the Saturday Evening Post, which was written by Eric Knight, called Lassie Come Home, with a hyphen between come and home. This was a, a British adjective to describe dogs that uh, travel long distances to find their owners. The MGM movie Lassie Come Home, starring Roddy McDowell and a very young Liz Taylor, was made in 1943 and was so successful that it spawned several sequels, including Son of Lassie in 1945 with the somewhat uncreatively named Laddie and Courage of Lassie in 1946, also starring Liz Taylor. So successful was his performance that Pal's own identity became completely subsumed into Lassie in a supremely weird and gender-bending way. So even though the dogs he played on screen were, after the first two films, not named Lassie, the films all bore the Lassie name and brand. Courage of Lassie, for example, proclaims that it stars Lassie as Bill. Bill? Bill. His name was Bill. Just yeah. Bill. Just Bill. Okay. Bill. Lassie as Bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, as you know, I, I mostly remember just seeing the black and white reruns of the Lassie show with... Timmy in the well. Yeah. But I, I don't really remember the films uh, that well. Yeah. And uh, and I don't remember any dog's name, Bill. I'm so Bill. disappointed by that. <laughs> See, I, I would definitely recommend a rewatch of Courage of Lassie. I, I, I also yeah. remember seeing seeing these movies as a kid but i didn't realize how bound up they are with the the climate during the the second world war i mean which i guess went over my head as a child but sort of smacked me in the face when i watched them just now it's worth noting that advertising was a huge part of lassie's visibility and you know all of these films are coming out during the 40s during the war um it was used the advertising was used not just to attract audiences for the movie but also to serve the war effort During World War II, movie theaters used Lassie doubles at the theaters to meet and shake hands with the kids, and also to help sell war bonds and collect donations for the Red Cross. And again, to bring up Rintintin, (laughs) Rintintin III was heavily involved in recruiting efforts via Dogs for Defense, a program sponsored and organized by the American Kennel Club to encourage civilians to donate their dogs for military use. Yeah, if you ever want to just like ball your eyes out, read about the War Dog Program. I'm actually, my next podcast will be about the War Dog Program. But, oh god yeah it's I, pretty I'm, awful I'm, I'm horrified it's pretty awful 
So, and again, it's, you know, the soldiers were going off to war too, but somehow it's so much worse that it's people's dogs. Anyway, Lassie Come Home, the movie, is actually set before even the First World War, as the title scroll tells us. It draws attention to the fact that the author of the story, Major Eric Knight, to whom the film is dedicated, was a soldier who served two countries, Britain in World War I, and later his adopted country, America, in World War II, where he, uh, in whose service he died. That sort of ends the war references in the first film, which actually to me seems to be a lot more about class, another thing that went right over my head as a kid. So you have this poor unemployed Yorkshireman who has to sell his dog, the only thing of value he has, to a rich lord who is the totally incapable of being sinister Nigel Bruce and his granddaughter Liz Taylor. The dog, of course, escapes from where she's being held in Scotland and travels hundreds of miles having all sorts of adventures to be reunited with her boy. And the sympathetic lord eventually not only allows it, but also gives the poor unemployed dad a job in his kennels. You know, hello, benevolent paternalism. What was the Lord doing with the dog? He just wanted wonder. a dog. I, it's actually really re- you. You you see his uh, Nigel Bruce's house, and he has this like menagerie of two of every kind of dog breed. And I think they they kind of go into the fact that he's showing the dogs, but it's very it's very weird. Well, it's very weird. Liz Elizabeth Taylor really loved her animal movies. Um, uh-huh. What was that other movie that she did? Um, that was really it was National, National Velvet, Velvet, but that was a horse. Yeah, that was yeah, a horse. that was a horse. Yeah. Yeah, that was her that was her bread and butter when she was younger, yeah. Actually, and um in in the in the first movie you have not only Liz Taylor but also uh Roddy McDowell, who of course he was pretty cute as a button. He wasn't so great at the Yorkshire accent, but he was, you know, he was cute as a button too. And of course they were reunited in Cleopatra, which Yeah, yeah. They were um I was thinking I was thinking friends. of the whole time, actually. I was like, You guys were in Lassie. <laughs> but yeah. That was that was Lassie Come Home. Courage of Lassie. Um, which was released in 1946, actually takes a a far more thoughtful tack about the realities of war. In this one, the title scroll again tips the film's hand, thanking the office of the quartermaster general, who was in charge of the the war dog training program during World War II. The lassie in this film, again actually played by Pal, this time plays a male character named Bill. He's the pup of an escaped show dog who somehow gets lost in the wild and gets adopted by a variety of woodland creatures before finally being adopted by Liz Taylor, who is a young shepherdess. After proving his prowess as a sheepdog, he gets separated from her and lying unclaimed in an animal hospital is signed over to the war dog program. And everybody gasps. There, he distinguishes himself for his bravery and his perseverance, but eventually it all becomes too much for him and Bill just snaps. You know, he refuses to work. He snarls at his handlers like he doesn't recognize them. And he's sent home suffering from what they called at the time total exhaustion. Uh, which is really what we might recognize today as PTSD, and from which not only the war dogs, but huge numbers of soldiers also suffered. Having been shipped back to the States, he escapes his handlers and returns to his home in the mountains, marauding livestock until he's confronted by his former owner, Liz Taylor, which, of course, conveniently switches his personality right back. True love True love the day. conquers all. So Bill has a really rough time in this movie. He gets shot by hunters as a puppy. He gets hit by a truck. He goes through basic training, which seems to actually involve live ammunition. That scene actually was harder than any of the other scenes for me to watch. Um, He gets shot again on the battlefield. He slogs through mud and machine gun fire. He eventually, as I said, gets put on trial for murder of chickens, of course. Um, But I guess the point to be made is heavy-handed, but maybe worth making. His lawyer tells the judge which is actually the, the, his lawyer is played by um, the guy who plays the Wizard of Oz randomly. But the lawyer tells the judge, a lot of our boys will be coming back, not quite ready to pick up where they left off. So in this case, Bill or Lassie is a stand-in for those soldiers coming home, but it's love that saves him. 
It's a nostalgic, sentimental reading of the human-dog relationship with, I guess, implications for the human-human relationship as well. I, I think it has big implications on how maybe poorly understood uh, PTSD was during that time or or maybe that it was just kind of this newer condition yeah, that yes, people absolutely. were seeking to treat or find ways to treat it. That's kind of That seems like it's seeping through the film a little bit. So this is actually a little bit bleeding into that third category of film that I, that I mentioned, which is using dogs as stand-ins for something else. Um, so actually, let's, let's turn to that now. Movies that feature dogs as stand-ins um, or metaphors for, for something else. As a premier example of this kind of movie, I'd actually like to submit Cujo, which I think is a little bit of an underrated movie. I admit, I rewatched Cujo for this podcast and actually found it to be in a lot of ways a lot subtler than I remembered. But Cujo, of course, has become iconic in its own right, synonymous with Very Bad Dog. Uh, it came out in 1983, based on the Stephen King novel. Oh, I also know, you know, obviously there are a lot of people who name dainty little toy dogs Cujo, ironically. So it's really, it, it has become part of the popular culture. So anyway. Well, yeah, I know, I know a lot of fat bulldogs named Lola. It's kind right. of like the ironic name is, 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 in, is in vogue right now. Uh-huh. So anyway, for those of you who haven't had the pleasure, Cujo is based on a Stephen King novel of the same name. It's set in Castle Rock, Maine, which was King's hometown and setting of many of his stories. So in this idyllic town lives a St. Bernard named Cujo, who, after being bitten by a rabid bat, goes on to terrorize his own family and the protagonists, a yuppie family with a number of dysfunctions. The wife is sleeping with the town handyman. Husband is clueless and works a lot. The small son is terrified silly of monsters. It's comforting to know that even in, in stories where dogs are bad, it's not really the dog's problem. Because maybe the audience wouldn't buy that. It's more like he has bad human owners or he's bitten by a rabid bat right. or there's some like kind Problem, of external yeah. force that's making, yeah, some external thing that's making him evil, like, you know, going to war. We all kind of accept that yeah. bad dogs are bad, not because dogs are innately bad, but because there's other things that are making them bad, mostly, you know, humans. And they aren't truly rotten, you know, like cats or anything like that. I mean, I have a cat yeah. and cats are horrible. Yeah, I mean, really, the, the story of Cujo is kind of a fable for what happens when you ignore your problems. So the little kid's afraid of monsters, but that fear of monsters is being implicitly reinforced by the dad giving him uh, these magic words to ward them off with. The wife keeps insisting, you know, of course, nothing's going on, even though she's sleeping with the handyman. Everybody in this movie's got problems that are being swept under the rug. And this extends to poor Cujo, who spends most of the first half of the movie lurking under porches and tables, getting progressively bloodier, dirtier, and gooier with this look on his face that just screams, take me to the vet for Christ's sake. And of course, everyone is shocked when he attacks. Everyone's like, oh my God, what happened? You know? Quick, quick question, quick yeah. question. Do you think uh, Cujo's uh, reputation has been restored by the Beethoven movies? That's interesting. Because apparently when they when they went to start making Cujo, there were no trained St. Bernards. Um, they were really yeah. they were worried about, you know, being able to train one and find one to um, uh, to, to use. And the, the guy who they found, to, Carl Miller, who was the trainer that they used in the movie, actually said, well, can't we just use like a Doberman or something? Because, um, you know, I have lots of those. And the filmmakers were like, no, it has to be a St. Bernard because the St. Bernard is so cuddly. So I think really Cujo is kind of Cujo's kind of against he's playing against character. But I think he does it very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe the Saint Bernard never really needed a rehabilitation. Right, right. This was yeah. Sense. This was the exception rather than the rule. So anyway, the book Cujo was written in 1981. The film came out two years later in 1983. Um, this incidentally was before the 1988 establishment of the American Humane Society's standards governing the treatment of animal performers. 
But the director, Louis Teague, has noted, as I think I said earlier, um, how sensitive he was to the problem of showing what appears to be animal cruelty on film, even the suggestion of it. He directed horror films before, and he noted that while people can take stabbing, shooting, knifing, or whatever of human characters relatively calmly, any suggestion that a dog is being hurt, the audience gets enraged. This was potentially tricky as the climax of the film, of course, is a fight between the wife, played by Dee Wallace, and Cujo, in which she clobbers him with a baseball bat, which she actually breaks and then impales him on. So as Teague outlines in the short documentary on the making of the film, the dog on film is actually a combination of anywhere from five to ten real St. Bernards, all trained to perform different aspects of the required action. Um, So like there was one dog that would jump on the car and there was another dog that would dig and there was another dog that would... I don't know, that chased, you know, the rabbit at the beginning. A mechanical dog head and also a man in a dog suit, which they used for a lot of the close quarter scenes. Um, Ooh, yeah. They also apparently had looked into a fake St. Bernard head that could be mounted on a Labrador, but that was, it just looked too <laughs> silly. So they scrapped it. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't think I would have liked to see that, that body at all. I think that'd be great. <laughs> it's a, it's a chimera, not a, not a, <laughs> I think it's it'd be a, great. like a weird chimera. So Teague's nervousness about showing violence to an animal has a long pedigree. See what I did there in the film industry. The British Board of Film Censors was set up in 1913. It still exists today, but the C in BBFC now stands for classification instead of censors. So from its foundation, the BBFC and the Hayes Office, which was a branch of the Motion Picture Association of America, the people who assign ratings to films, took an interest in the welfare of animals. I mean, it's very... I don't know. It's very strange, actually, the collection of things that these bodies regulated. So just to name a few, unmarried people sharing a bed, profanity, miscegenation, and animal cruelty. Those no animals were harmed tags you see today at the end of films are ultimately the result of this push and are bestowed by the American Humane Association. The catalyst was the 1939 film Jesse James, which involved the death of several horses as they were made to fall with the use of tripwires and then run off a cliff. After a pub, I know it's like it's it's. If you watch oh. the scenes too, it's like you can tell those horses die. It's like there's no, there's no, yeah, yeah. It's pretty rough. Um, like Milo and Otis. Oh God, like I'm, you know what? Milo I'm, and Otis. I'm, I'm still really sad you made me watch that YouTube clip, which actually maybe we can put in the comments, um, for for people oh. to watch, so that other people can be as traumatized as I was by the the short expose of the making of Milo and Otis. Um, oh yeah, that's pretty bad. So after public outcry after Jesse James, the Hayes office began to require the American Humane Association to be present on film sets. In practice, however, their influence was limited and they were barred altogether in 1966 when the Hayes office closed. The AHA was finally allowed back in 1977, and in 1988, they established standards which are still applied to films today uh, to earn ratings of acceptable through outstanding, uh, if they want that no animals were harmed tag, depending on the level of access uh, allowed to the AHA and the precautions taken. But there's something that runs through these efforts uh, that, that shows a real sense of being disturbed, not just at the actual suffering of animals, so the suffering that, that happens during production. So if you use a cruel method to train an animal, you know, the animal is actually mm-hmm. being hurt, but also even the depiction of suffering. As early as 1937, for example, the earliest draft of the British Cinematograph Films Animals Act which attempted to establish standards for treatment of film animals, sought to forbid any depiction of suffering, though it was later revised. But this tension is something that never really went away, which I, I think is kind of a strange thing. No? Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think that um, it's not that people or, or directors, filmmakers, it's not like they won't 
if if the if a scene or a movie calls for the suffering in an animal, they'll do it. But what I've noticed is that it's more implied. Yeah. It's more like they won't show it directly. Right. And it's not because I don't think they can achieve the effect um, without hurting the animal. I think they can achieve uh, a very gory effect. Uh, yeah, and have I mean, the CGI. Complete, and it, completely safe. Yeah. yeah, CGI, whatever. But but it's it's just a question of like tone and the taste of American audiences or just audiences in general. We just yeah. don't want to see the suffering of animals and it doesn't matter if it's if it's all fake because it's just there's something that disturbs us deep inside like as you said it, we we feel the same way about children uh, right. in film right yes and uh yeah is it because animals are or dogs in particular are they defenseless or are they just considered innocent because it's just sort of like their happy nature um or is it because we really do consider them like kids you know is right. it a combination of all three yeah, something like that. And I mean, and this is this is something that um, Gabriel Gonzalez Inarritu ran up against in his Amores Peros, which is a great film uh, from 2000, which carries not only the no animals were harmed tag at the end, but also very unusually a disclaimer at the beginning of the film that says that no animals were actually harmed. So if you're at all familiar with this film, you'll understand why. It tells three disconnected stories that are briefly connected by a car accident in Mexico City. The thread that runs through these three stories is dogs. All three sets of the main characters have a dog that's important to them. And without exception, terrible things happen to these dogs. Um, The entire movie is hard to watch and it's supposed to be hard to watch. But some of the hardest scenes are uh, dog fighting scenes, Um, really kind of um, graphic dog fighting scenes, uh, which result in one of the dogs becoming so traumatized that later in the movie, after being removed from that environment, he kills all the other dogs around him. So, I mean, this is a lesson, of course. Violence begets violence. And the only way to stop violence is to stop the cycle, as the human does in this case. So he's confronted with the necessity of killing the murderous ex-fighting dog, but instead he realizes the pain behind the dog's actions and sees his own violent past in the dog and so spares him. But, okay, this message aside, Inyaritu was, was really surprised by the level of emotional response that the dog violence engendered. The movie is brutal, but it was those dog scenes that really got people up in arms. The Mexican SPCA was heavily involved on set during filming, although the American Humane Association gave it only a questionable rating due to the fact that the filmmaker apparently sedated dogs uh, that were supposed to appear to be dead or dying, although he said he did it under veterinary supervision. But why this reaction? I mean, as Inuritu said in in an interview um, after the film came out, people ignore a young guy dying of AIDS in the street, but they see a cat with a drop of blood and they go, oh, poor cat. So, you know, what's going on here? It's also drawing on these these earlier themes that you were talking about, how dogs can get traumatized, how dogs can uh, stand in for human problems or for social problems. Yeah, and how it's not really their fault. It's yeah, yeah. They're they're convenient proxies um, to talk about how um, society can can kind of corrupt people. I mean, the dog is kind of it's like a blank slate. Um, so it, if it gets it absorbs kind of the good and the bad from the people around it. And yeah, I think, you know, later movies have have shied away less from kind of the dark implications of that, um, like Amores Peros, but and like Cujo in some ways. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I I think there is just a a visceral reaction that we have to seeing animals being being hurt. Yeah. And, you you know, you mentioned um, the Will Smith movie. Oh, yeah. I am. I'm still not over. Uh, I am legend. Yeah. But the, when he kills, um, when he kills his dog because the dog is turning infected, spoiler, yeah. right. <laughs> spoiler, the dog is turning into a vampire or a vamp dog. 
again, the violence is implied or, uh, you know, we know that uh, it, it's it's a big character moment for him yeah. because it's a close up on Will Smith's face. And we right. understand his anguish in uh, snuffing out the last friend that he has basically on Earth. Right. Um, and that he's true. And after the dog dies, he is truly alone. Right. But but we cannot. So it, it is a big character moment. But I think it that was that decision, that the directorial decision was also geared by the fact that no one wants to see the dog get hurt. And right. so the dog is almost completely off screen when this happens. Right. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it, it I think has, as you say, has a lot to do with the taste of American audiences and audiences everywhere, I guess. Um, yeah. We do not want to see our, our dog suffer. No. Um, there's no, there's no show called my dog from hell. It's just my cat, my cat from, from hell. hell. But even that, I mean, um, we don't really want to see the cat suffer because... But I, I feel like when cats do suffer, it's shown more than dogs. Mm -hmm. How much of that, I think, also is, is bound up with the fact that, that the human-dog relationship is something that the, the human-cat relationship is not. You know, the dogs, yeah. as I've said before, you know, they evolved as sort of helpmeets to humans. They understand us better than any other animal in the animal kingdom, really. So, yeah, there's something about that, that relationship that's not there with a cat. Cats are too independent. I, I do I do remember one graphic scene of a dog death and it was in this um it was actually it was actually in a scene in a movie where people were saying that Marky Mark could act because this was like at the beginning of Marky Mark's Hollywood oh, career. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um it was called it was called Fear and it also starred a Oh a yeah, younger, oh god. A, a younger that. A, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, a younger Reese Witherspoon. This is before Reese Witherspoon was a big star. It was obviously People who knew who Marky Mark was, but he was just like, you know, the Calvin Klein dude, you know, going, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, and, well, he to was make, still Marky to make Mark, and not Mark Wahlberg. But, you know, he, the, what's the movie about? The movie is like, he's basically just a dangerous stalker and he's stalking Reese, Reese Witherspoon and right. kind of terrorizing her family. And they, he does like a home invasion type thing where he brings all his friends and they're going to like, they're going to like kill her family or something. It's been a while since I've seen it. But the first scene of the home invasion is that, they decapitated the dog. Obviously, yes. it's a fake dog head, but they decapitated like the dog, and then they put the dog's head through the doggy door so they can see like they're serious mofo's here. Yes. They're not going to mess around. And every I remember seeing that in in the movie theater. I was about sixteen years old, and everyone just kind of like groaned. Everyone was like, "Oh, you're that kind of movie. You're going to be the movie that decapitates <laughs> dogs. Oh, it's that's the kind of movie we're seeing." So and there was, was there was just a yeah there was just this kind of like disappointment like this deep disappointment in in the film. like I think everyone was into it but as soon as the decap not disappointed the in the movie head, for itself but yeah the fact that the dog got decapitated so that's that's a little recent that's a little recent history but really I can't I can't think of something that was that was as graphic as that that I've seen recently and that was not recently at all yeah I mean generally speaking if the dog has to die there's like a cutaway at the last moment or you know some yeah. kind of it's implied. But you don't see it, and a, a small a small whimper, and yeah. you know the dog is dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, I guess to to sum up, whether dogs are the real stars of the film or whether they're just there to support the human actors, as we've seen, dogs are never just dogs. Cinema dogs are cultural artifacts, constructed and controlled by humans, shaped for our needs and our use. Dogs show us ourselves, and it isn't always pretty. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook. 
and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week! <laughs>